I love the fact that we're in this series called Untangled because um, a lot of times, if I were to be honest, maybe I need this series for myself. I felt knotted up, all tangled up this whole week for a whole myriad of reasons. One, doing the faith and politics thing and knowing that whatever we say as a church, people are going to misinterpret it and read their things and and also trying to navigate life and navigate family and, and just preparing my heart to preach. There's, there was just a lot of things that was coming at me. And, and, and to be honest, like that's the season we're in. We really need to slow down, to rest and look up and to untangle our lives. And, and as we've been saying in this series for the last couple of weeks, it's just going, the reality is we can't do this on our own. Now, just saying that, I also want to um, emphasize again the importance of worship, of singing and praying before we even get together to hear God's word. They're not just perfunctory things. They're not just things that we do to fill the gap and as part of the worship service order and all that kind of stuff. It really is an opportunity for us to express our heart, not just our affections, but also our needs, our wants, our issues. Like for me, that worship moment that we just had was actually really um, impactful for my own heart to come here to preach. I needed that. I needed to be reminded that he is worthy. He is the king. And that if I want to express my worth to him, I lay down my crown. That helps me to untangle a lot of the issues and the mess in my heart and in my life. And that's why we're in this series. Because we want to come together as believers and just go, okay, life can create messes and we can live in a mess and my emotions can feel like my mess. And my thought processes can feel like a mess. How do we live above that? How do we live in the freedom that we've been given through Jesus's death and resurrection? These are the questions that we want to answer in this series. And we started out Okay, we started out a couple of weeks ago by just reminding ourselves that in our weakness or when we are weak, that's when the Holy Spirit picks up and he's praying for us. God doesn't shame us in our weakness. He doesn't condemn us when life gets us, trips us up, knots us up. He's praying for us, interceding for us perfectly to the Father who's promised us in Romans 8.28 that he will work all things out together for the good of those who love him. He will. And last week we saw from when Pastor Chad looked at Philippians that we have every reason to rejoice always. We have every reason to give thanks in all circumstances. These things help us to rise above the mess. These things allow us to basically, you know, untangle the mess we feel inside while we are in the mess. And for the heartbeat of the series, we've been using Romans 8, looking at two verses, specifically Romans 8, 5, and 6, that says, in summary, to set your mind on the things of the flesh is death, but to set your mind on the things of the Spirit is life. And when we look at our lives, and we look at our circumstances, and we look at our situations, we look at the things that we think about and feel, it's a faith thing, it's a perspective thing. Are we going to see it and set our mind on the ways of the world, the flesh, or through the Spirit and on the Spirit? If we do it through the flesh, we will stay tangled up. If we try to do it even in our own efforts, we will create a larger mess. But it's through the Spirit. Setting our minds on the things of the Spirit allows us to rise above and allows Him to make sense of the mess and to untangle the mess in our lives. So what I want to talk to you this morning 
I want to encourage you uh, to turn to 2 Corinthians chapter 5, because that's where we're going to be spending our time today in the Word. But I want to talk to you about is how do we deal, okay, let's just be honest, how do we deal with the messy aspects of relating to other people? How do we love people? How do we engage our relationships? How do we see those who don't vote like us? How do we see um, people who don't think like us, who don't look like us, who aren't even in the same economic stratus as us? How does God's word speak into these areas? Like, how should we see people? How do you see people? I want you to just start thinking about that. Just start priming your own heart here. Do you see people through the lens of the gospel? Do you see people through the lens of the flesh, through the lens of the world, or through the spirit? Because I'm telling you right now, if you see people through the lens of the flesh and the world's ways and categories, relationships and interactions with other people get way beyond tricky. They really do trip us up. And I want to tell you this, that if we set our heart and our minds on the things of the Spirit, we will see people through the gospel lens, through the gospel filter, and we will see them differently. And we will actually be compelled and motivated to love them, and we will see our purpose for loving them. Okay? That is absolutely important. Now, I don't know about you, but for me... People aren't always easy to get along with, okay? Like, even though I'm a pastor and a shepherd, our, my job is we shepherd people, right? And it, not everybody is, is easy to get along with. And not everybody's like great and happy and all those types of things. And we all have different interactions with different people. And, and it's just people can be messy. And let's just be honest. It's not because the issue is always them. Probably 99% of the time, the issue is yourself, Right, if we were just to be honest, relationships are great. Interacting with other humans is what it means to be human. It brings life, it brings flourishing, right? Like we are relational beings. We're created in the image of God to be relational, but it's hard, it's tricky. And for the believer, we are called to love our neighbor because that's how Jesus loved us. When we love him, we love our neighbor. We are exhorted to to love our enemy, to pray for our enemies. We are called to maintain unity. We are exhorted to, as far as it depends upon us, to be at peace. We are uh, challenged to forgive others, to love others others, to show mercy to others, to lay down our rights for the sake of others. That's downright difficult. It's extremely hard. And, let's just, and, and really, it can feel impossible. It really does. It's because we're sinful. I'm sinful. You're sinful. And because we're both sinful, that means we're both inherently selfish. And that creates problems. And that's why relationships and interacting with other people can really tangle up our lives. But Scripture shows us another way to set our mind on the things of the Spirit, to have a different motivation to compel us to love people. So let's look at this. 2 Corinthians chapter 5. We're going to be looking at verses 11 through 21, okay? Chapter 5, or verse 11 through 15. Therefore, knowing the fear of the Lord, 
we persuade others. But what we are is known to God, and I hope it is known also to your conscience. We are not commending ourselves to you again, but giving you cause to boast about us, so that you may be able to answer those who boast about outward appearance, not about what's in the heart. For if we are beside ourselves, it is for God. If we are in our right mind, it is for you. For the love of Christ controls us, because we have concluded this, that one has died for all, therefore all have died, and he died for all, that those who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who for their sake died and was raised. Now, in these five verses, what we see is what was Paul's motivation, okay? And this isn't just just Paul saying, hey, this is what you got to say as an apostle. Like, this is his life's motivation. It it, it was compelling. It was controlling his life. It influenced and defined everything inside of him. And what we see here in these short five verses is that there was two things specifically that were his compelling motivation. It was the fear of the Lord and the love of Christ. Now, when you first see that, that can feel contradictory, okay? He's knowing the fear of the Lord, we persuade others. And then just a little bit down, he says in verse 14, for the love of Christ controls me or compels me. They look like they're opposites, but they're really not, okay? And I want to explain this. Knowing, therefore, the fear of the Lord How is the fear of God compelling? Okay? In this context, when Paul says the fear of the Lord, he's not talking about like the respect and awe, like God is so amazing, so majestic. A lot of times in the Old Testament when it says the fear of the Lord, that's what it speaks to is this this awe, reverence. But this is like legitimate fear of the Lord. Like I'm a little like, oh my goodness, this is God, I better get on my knees type of thing. And the reason why he says this is because he understands the gospel. Okay, we can't miss this. Knowing therefore the fear of the Lord. What he's alluding to here is the fact that in above ourselves, apart from Jesus Christ, every single human, every single person you meet apart from the gospel is under God's wrath. We're sinful, we're rebels, we're idol worshipers. And because of that, that's placed us under his wrath. We have chosen a different life. And so because of that, Paul's like, knowing the fear of the Lord, I'm here to persuade other people. Like, I understand that at one point in my life, like I, I realized it hit me that I'm underneath God's wrath and, and I didn't know what to do. I saw myself as wretched, as, as useless. There was nothing that I could do to ever earn favor with God. There was nothing I could do to bring to the table of reconciliation with God. It had to have been him and I didn't even know if he could or if he would. And he discovered Jesus. In other words, I should say Jesus encountered Paul. Now, Paul, understanding that, he sees everything different. He knows that every single person apart from Jesus is under the wrath of God. Now, I know this is not popular conversation in our culture. Oh, nobody likes to talk about this. Everybody likes to talk about the good things, the the fluffy dream, 
loaded things of Jesus. Like, we're all, we're all going to go to heaven. And dogs even go to heaven. Cats don't. But everything else, they all, like, it's just, just, just tell me all the good, all the good, all the good, all the good. You can't even understand or appreciate the good until you know the present reality. That's why Paul starts others, like, knowing the fear of the Lord. Oh, my goodness. My friend who doesn't know Jesus, he's going to hell. Maybe my mom or my dad or my coworker, like, that's a reality. And, and we need to talk about that. We said this, I don't know what message we talked about this. And it's like the problem, the world thinks that like humanity is inherently good with just some bad apples. But scripture is very clear. It's like the world, humanity is inherently evil. We're, we're all under God's wrath. And that's why we have the gospel, which means good news. Listen, you cannot fully appreciate. You, you cannot fully even like enjoy the love of God if you don't understand what he saved us from, what he's rescued us from. Like you, you, if you don't know that aspect, you won't be compelled or motivated to want to love your neighbor. You'd be like, well, why would I love my neighbor? Well, because they're under God's wrath. And by the way, you love them. They will see Jesus in you. Like we, we got to remember this. This is how we begin to love in all things. Paul's compelling motivation was the fear of God and the love of Christ. Paul knew, he knew clearly that people's forevers were at stake. Think about that. I know we're in an election. I know that. And I know we're using a lot of big words like the state of our future is at stake. What we're talking about in an election is a temporary reality. The church has been given the greatest mandate in the world. We operate with people's forevers. Government operates with people's temporaries. So when we look at this, Paul's like, my, my mission is extremely important and, and I want to love people. So I know the fear of the Lord. So I, I want to persuade other people. We got to come back to that because I'm telling you, if you don't know the fear of the Lord, it's so hard to want to love people. Your fickle, your, your motivation to love people will get really fickle otherwise. So yeah, the fear of God ought to be a compelling motivator. 100%. 100%. Think about the people in your life who don't know Jesus. Just think about that for a moment. And I don't want to be dramatic. But I'm just trying to be real. Where are they at? your friends, your colleagues, your enemies, your opponents. Where, where is their eternal destiny heading? Of course, only God knows. We're not called to judge that. But the question is, are we content with not knowing? Are we content knowing that maybe they're heading for a life forever apart from Jesus? Like that reality should really burden us. It should really compel us to love in all circumstances. Because here's what we're going to see. And here's why this matters. Paul is showing us in these verses that his life is now completely defined by the gospel. Is yours? Is your life defined by the gospel? 
His life is so defined, so much so that he is determined to persuade others about their need for Jesus. He's willing to do whatever it takes. He's willing to pay whatever cost there is to help people see Jesus. And that's why he even goes on in these odd verses in 12 and 13. Like, I just want to look at verse 13. It's like, if, if we are beside ourselves, like just speaking in first person for Paul, it's like, if I am beside myself, it's for God. And if we are in our right mind, well, it's for you. Like, well, what is Paul saying? He's like, hey, if I'm beside myself, and if I'm acting crazy to you, and if you think I'm a Jesus freak, and I'm just some kind of fanatic type of person, it's fine. I don't care. It's for God. I'm, I'm doing it because of what he's done for me, and I understand what you don't see yet. But he's also saying, it's like, well, if, if I am in my right mind, which is another way of Paul saying, it's like, then I'm living, if like, the way I'm living can be considered crazy, it's right because it's being motivated by Christ. So either way, if you think I'm nuts or if you think I'm right, I'm right. Like Paul's whole life was completely now defined by the gospel. So here comes verse 14, which I would say is the pinnacle of these, past, these verses. For the love of Christ controls us. Or you can even use the word compels. They're very similar in their definition here in this passage. For the love of Christ controls us. Get this. Because we have concluded this. Because of what we've concluded is allowing the love of Christ to compel me. That one has died for all. Therefore, all have died. The love of Christ controls me. Don't go too quick here. I want you to start thinking about that. I want you to start asking questions in your own life about like what controls you, what compels you, what, what's your life's motivation and purpose. The love of Christ compels me. I mean, this is Paul painting a powerful picture of the trajectory force in his life. I mean, this word controlled or compelled is this idea of something that's putting a lot of pressure on something to create action. It's a catalytic agent. It, it rules us. It controls us. It's almost as if it's putting you into a corner where you have to act. It's crowding around you. It's ever pervasive. It leaves you with no other options. That's what Paul is saying. He's like, Be I know where I've been. I've been under his wrath and, and dead in my sins. There was nothing that I could do. And he came and he saved me and he poured out his grace and his mercy and his love on me. Oh my goodness. His love is now my life driving force. And that completely changes how I see people and my purpose in life. And that's the point. When you look at the circumstances, situations in your life, we get tangled up primarily because we don't have the right motivation. And secondly, we don't understand our true purpose. If we got a hold of those two things and had it right, we would be setting our minds on the things of the Spirit. And listen, can I tell you something? There is no better motivation we can have in this world than the love of Christ. Nothing. What controls you? What compels you? What is your main motivator in your life? When you look at people, how do you see relationships? How do you interact with other people? 
this is the motivation we need in order to be able to love in all things. This is the one aspect of what it looks like to have your mind set on the Spirit. It's not, and here's the good news, it's not our love for God that compels us, it's His love for us that compels us. Because if it was my love for Him, my motivation will run out like any diet trend I've ever been on. I'll start strong, and then I see queso. Game over. It's not my love for him that compels. It's not my love for him that motivates. It's not my religious fervor. It's his love for me. It's his love for us. It's the gospel that is our primary motivator. The love of Christ ought to be controlling the believer. The fear of God and the love of Christ. It, and let me just say this real quick. The love of God isn't some kind of warm, fuzzy, cuddly love all the time. In fact, it, a lot of times you don't feel that, and a lot of people say, oh, I just don't feel it. It's, that's, that's not it. Love is not best expressed by feeling. Love is best expressed through action. And God's love took his only son, Jesus, to the cross. God's love, the Father's love, in a way controlled Jesus. I mean, just look at to where he took him and why he did it. Paul, listen, Paul never recovered. He never recovered from the discovery that all of his guilt and all of his shame has been placed on Jesus and nailed to the cross. And then all of Jesus's righteousness has been now placed on Paul. He never, ever recovered from that reality. And that's why he lived the way he did. And that's why the gospel defined everything in his life. But now look at the second part of this verse. Because we have concluded this, because we are convinced of this, this, my friends, is a gospel resolution. And I'm going to ask you, have you resolved this? Like, have you settled this in your heart? The love of Christ compels me. But why? Because we've concluded this. I'm not even questioning this. This is settled. I am resolute on this. Because one has died. Jesus has died. Therefore, all have died. And he died for all, verse 15, that those who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him, for their sake, died and was raised. This has to be settled. This is Gospel 101. Did Jesus die for the world? Don't give me the semantic Sunday school answer. Did Jesus die for the world? Have you received the love of Christ? The gift of grace, salvation is extended to you. If so, then we got to understand that his gospel is for the world and we have a part to play in that and that allows us to love in all things. It changes how we see people. It changes how we see our purpose in life. Jesus died for you. He died for that Democrat. He died for that Republican. He died for everyone. Everyone. That is our filter. That is how we ought to be seeing things and seeing people. 
Verse 16. Here is gospel resolution number two. From now on. Just that little line right there. That's like Paul saying, okay, I am convinced of this. And you're never going to change my opinion on this because it's fact. So because of that, from now on, I, look at this, from now on, therefore, we regard no one according to the flesh. Even though we once regarded Christ according to the flesh, we regard him thus no longer. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away and the new has come. This is a powerful gospel resolution. From now on, I'm just going to say it this way. From now on, we will never see people the same again. You will never see people the same again because of the gospel. These are powerful resolutions that we must make because they're true. And Paul is saying because of Jesus, like, I, I, I can't regard anybody according to the flesh. So we don't look at the appearances of the flesh. We don't see people and put them in categories the way the world puts people in categories. We're not going to differentiate people on race or gender or economic status or ethnicity or whatever it is. We're not going to do that because that's setting your mind on the flesh. Because of the gospel, we set our minds on the things of the spirit. We don't see people that way. We don't regard anyone according to the flesh. Even though we once regarded Christ this way, which is in other words, Paul's like, I just saw Jesus as some annoying person disrupting the peace and the, and the potential growth and revival of Ju- Judaism. He saw Jesus as an enemy and he wanted to go out and take him down. But it wasn't until Jesus encountered Paul on the road to Damascus and flipped his world upside down that he understood, oh my goodness, He is Lord. He is King of Kings. Woe is me, wretched man that I am. And because of that, that changed his perspective on how he saw people, even his enemies, even groups of people that were against him. Changes everything. Have you resolved this? How do you see people? How do you see your neighbors? How do you see your loved ones? I challenge you because of Jesus to not see them according to the flesh, to the ways and standards of this world. Because Jesus wants to make new creations. He wants to make those who are dead alive. And that's why Paul says in verse 17, therefore, if anyone is in Christ, if anyone has received the gift of life, they are a new creation. The old is gone. The old attitudes, the old behaviors, the old way of seeing people and the things of this world are gone. And now we see things anew. And he continues in verse 18. I love, I love, love, love these five words. All this is from God. It ain't my idea. If it was left up to me, I would care less about you. That was mean. But you know what I mean. Like all of this is from God. We can't do any of this. All of this, it's from God. It's his idea who through Christ, now here's a big word, reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That is in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them and entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. It is all from God. 
It's not from us. It's not the, the, the church's idea. It's all from God. The church is God's idea. The gospel is God's idea. Reconciliation, it's God's initiative. It's his idea. He sent his son Jesus to die for us so that God could be reconciled to us. And this word reconciliation is a powerful word. It, it assumes that there's some sort of alienation between either two people or two groups of people, that there's distance, enmity, and hostility, separation. It's a powerful word. And I know that as you hear that word, like specifically in our country today, we are well aware that there's great need for racial reconciliation. And now let me add a few other ones on that. We need political reconciliation. We need reconciliation within the family. We need reconciliation in the home, in marriages. But reconciliation and forgiveness aren't the same thing because I can forgive you and you, you don't have to forgive me. And because I forgive you and if you choose to not forgive me, that's not reconciliation. Reconciliation is when two groups of people acknowledge and are able to discuss the nature of wrongs that were done and they're able to be accountable and ask forgiveness for any harm and to make amends and to make things right. That's reconciliation. And when reconciliation happens, it's powerful. It's beautiful. It's humbling. It's completely restoring. And I know that as you hear this word reconciliation, it's hard for us to get our minds beyond the racial reconciliation concept because that really is on the forefront of the hearts and minds of the American people presently. But I want to say this. The main issue that is causing the hostility between different colors of people is not racism itself. Racism is a byproduct or a manifestation of sin, evil in the heart. That's where racism comes from. It comes from the evil and the sin that's in the human heart. And so, yes, we must squash and eradicate racism, 100%. That is a biblical value, 100 million percent. But it will only be a band-aid solution until reconciliation ultimately happens between us in God, because the heart is evil, we need to be a new creation in order to live with a different perspective, to see people differently the way that we're intended to see people. And here's the deal. Reconciliation cannot happen apart from the gospel because any type of reconciliation apart from the gospel always starts with putting people at different, ladder, um, different levels and different categories and different groups. Like, that's the reality. Or it's like one group of persons say, well, you're going to have to come up to me or you're going to have to come down to me. Even though all reconciliation, we say that all people are created equal, the premise is just not always embraced or lived out in this world because they will always see people and will always place people at different categories and different levels because that's how the flesh operates. You see, the gospel doesn't do that. You see, the gospel doesn't see people according to the flesh. It doesn't see statuses. It doesn't see levels. It doesn't see differences in ethnicities. The gospel sees everyone as equal because all are created equal in the image of God. And it sees everyone at the same level, which is, apart from Jesus, we're dead in our sin under God's wrath. 
inherently evil, needing a savior, we can't initiate the reconciliation. It's impossible. And there's nothing we can do. Only the gospel, when it's believed, can we truly move towards reconciliation. Because there, when the gospel comes, it meets everybody at the same spot, at the same spot, with the same needs, where we can truly say there is no Jew, no Greek. There is no male nor female. There is no poor nor rich. There is no black nor white. There is no slave nor free. We're all one because of Jesus, because he died for the whole world. Word by nature, separated by God, and he's the only one who has to take the initiative. We can't do it because our, <laughs> we can't. Like, we caused the wrong. We have nothing to bring to the table. He did nothing wrong. God is the only one who can set the terms of reconciliation. He's the only one. And if reconciliation is going to happen, it's going to be on his terms. It's not going to be on my terms. It won't be on your terms. It doesn't happen that way. In human relationships, we both come with terms. That's reconciliation. But in the gospel, it's all on his. And his terms is justice. Justice must be served. There has to be a punishment for the sin. And that punishment is death, a life forever separated from God. So, let me give you an illustration of how this might work. Let's just say I'm appointed as a judge, and I, my job and duty is to uphold the law, and I'm supposed to judge between right and wrong, righteous acts and unrighteous acts. And let's just say a guy comes into my, into my courtroom um, in, in, in a criminal court, and he says, Your Honor, I did it. I killed all 20 of those people. I did it. And he's, it's not a false confession, nor is it a sham, because all the evidence points to him. Every, everything supports his claim that he did do it. But then he says, Your Honor, you know what? I'm just really sorry. I feel really bad about that. I'm so sorry for all the implications that came out and what I did. I just feel really bad about that, but I just want you to know that if you'll just forgive me, then I'll clean up my act. And if I said, sure, I'm a nice judge, I'm a gracious judge, I'll find joy in forgiving you, hey, you're free to go. The reality is I would be fired because justice has to be met. Who's going to pay for the crime? So how God can do this? Where is the justice? How can he forgive us? Where is justice land? It's on Jesus. Completely on Jesus. All this is from God who through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. And if I were to jump ahead to verse 21, you see it right here. For our sake, for our sake, he made him, Jesus, to be sin who knew no sin so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. God is not a reluctant savior. He knew justice had to be served. He knew that there was a price that needed to be paid. And that price was satisfied when Jesus took on not just my sin and not just your sin, but the sin of every single person who breathed a breath and put it on him. Reconciliation, therefore, because of the gospel, is not something we do with God. 
Reconciliation, and this is the only place where this happens, reconciliation is something we embrace. It's not something we do. God did no wrong. He had no reason to have to do this, but he did it because he loved. He exacted the justice on his own son who bore the full wrath of God on the cross for us so that we could have life, be a new creation. You see how this changes things? Because it's not just you that God did this for. It's for every single person that you see, every single person you interact with, every single person you judge, every single person you criticize, every single person you love. This should allow us to untangle our perceptions of human relationships. When we see things through the gospel, we are compelled to want to love. We are going to like, you know, I'm going to let the gospel define everything and now I'm going to have a new purpose to love. A new purpose to love. And that's why Paul goes on and says like, it's all from God through Christ who reconciled himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. And then like we see in verse 20, he's like, he's entrusting us with this message. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ. Like, this is my purpose. This is why we exist. God making his appeal through us. We implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled with God. Be reconciled with God. Like, like this is why, like all my interactions with every single person as a result of Jesus, I'm his ambassador, which means uh, the words and the ideas and the opinions that come out of my mouth have to be a reflection of my king. And an ambassador is subservient to the ruler who sent that ambassador to a foreign nation. We're ambassadors. And we are here to make, to implore other people to be reconciled with God who did it for them. They don't even know. They don't even know that God paid for their sin, that God is satisfied because of what he did, not because of what you could do. You don't reconcile with him. You just receive what he has done. He reconciles. And when we understand that, it changes everything. The love of Christ compels me. It controls me. It changes how I see people because he died for all not for some and not just for your friends and not just for those who look like you and talk like you and vote like you. It's, it's for everyone. So we see people differently. And when I understand that I'm an ambassador, I get to tell people about what God the Father has done through his son Jesus. Oh my goodness, I can't wait to tell you what the king has done. This ought to change everything. And this is why we can love in all things. And I know, I know relationships are so messy. And I know they're so hard. And there's some people you're probably going, I can't forgive them. I can't love them. I can't even be in the same room with them. Don't see them through the flesh. See them through the spirit. See them the way Jesus sees them. Let the love of Christ saturate your heart be controlled and compelled by that and realize that your purpose for life isn't just for you to do your thing but as a believer you are an ambassador 
of God. So I want to do three things as we conclude. I want you to really wrestle with this. What compels you? What controls you? What motivates you? Is it the love of Christ or is it something else? And I I just want to be blunt. If it's something else, I'm going to ask you to repent of that. Remember the gospel. Don't ever get over it. Don't ever get over what he has done for you. And then when you remember that, I want to encourage you to live like an ambassador. Live like an ambassador. Be very passionate about the kingdom of God. Be passionate about people's forevers, not people's temporaries. First forevers, temporaries are important, 100%. We care about it all because that's what kingdom people do. We care about even the now and the future, but let's not just care about the now, the detriment of the future. Be an ambassador of Jesus in this season. Yes, in this season. And for those of you who have never been reconciled with God, listen, justice has been served. If you receive the gift of life that he extended to you this very moment, all of your sin has already been placed on him. He's already died for you. The price has already been paid for you. But if you don't receive that, if you don't take that gift that our king is extending to us, you will live a life forever separated from God. And I know some people, atheists, will think, well, that's the greatest thing ever. No, 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 it's not. Right now, God extends common grace to all humanity. And there's going to come a time when that common grace won't be there. And you're going to regret that decision. I'm telling you, you're going to regret it. Be reconciled with God. I implore you on God's behalf, be reconciled to God. Would you pray with me? Lord, I thank you that your word is so rich and it speaks straight to the heart. Lord, I ask that you would forgive us for not seeing people the way you see people. Lord, I ask that you would forgive us for using people for our own selfish gains and pleasures and desires. Lord, I ask that you would forgive us for manipulating people or even using other people as idols. Forgive us for seeing people according to the ways of the flesh. Lord, we ask that your spirit would cause us to be compelled by the love of God. Lord, if we are controlled by anything else, Lord, I pray that you would do your work and replace that and let the gospel, your love, be our driving, motivating factor in our lives. And God, I ask that from now on, we would see people the way you see people. And Lord, that we would live on a higher purpose to be an ambassador, to not only communicate the gospel, but to live the gospel, modeling the gospel, telling people about Jesus' sin and the hope that we have in Jesus, but also meeting the needs of those who are marginalized and oppressed and standing and fighting for all of the justice issues and things that we see in Scripture. Lord, may we be kingdom people, ambassadors. That's the kingdom we come from. 
So God, I just ask that you would do a work in your church. And Lord, I want to pray for any brother or sister that's out there who may be choosing to be reconciled with you, maybe receiving the gift of salvation for the first time today. Lord, I pray that they would experience what it means to be a new creation. Lord, that they would see just how great of a deliverance this is and see the, a glimpse of the depth of your love for them. And also, would you open up their eyes so that they can see people the way you see people? May we as a church be the vehicle for you to advance the gospel. In Jesus' name, amen.